to the Polyculture Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk about all kinds of culture, from permaculture to pop culture. And in this episode, we're going to talk about nature culture. culture. Where's that dividing line between society and the natural world? Does it exist? Do we want it? All of those questions. Hi, I'm Lena Greenberg. I use they, them pronouns. I'm from Brooklyn, New York, and I've been to a lot of places most of which I've gone to to learn about the interaction between people and the natural world, how people interact with land, how we use resources, and how we are in fact part of the natural world. I am a big picture systems person. I like to make stuff out of other stuff, and I'm excited to talk about nature culture. I'm Gabriel Coleman. I also use they, them pronouns. I'm from Minnesota originally. I'm currently studying a master's degree in environmental history, and I'm interested in the stories that we tell about ourselves in relation to the natural world and how those stories can connect us with the natural world. For the second part of this podcast, we are going to talk about how nature shows up in popular media, from books to movies to video games. As you know, we are in a climate crisis and we need everyone, writers, bakers, artists, everybody, to help us build a movement to fight the forces that got us here and to build a more caring and resilient society. In order to build that movement, we need to figure out how these ideas about nature and environment make their way into the things that we read and watch every day. But before we get to that we're going to take this first part and try to define for ourselves what nature means. So by starting, Lena, do you have a place from your life, from your childhood that you would think of as natural? Yes, and I would say I grew up in the middle of New York City, so everyone has a lot to say about how unnatural New York City is. But actually, I grew up going to parks and looking at birds that had flown there from all over the world, spending time on waterfronts and walking around marshes. I actually think New York City is full of natural places. I grew up just a few blocks away from the Gowanus Canal, which is one of the most polluted bodies of water in the contiguous U.S., and while the Gowanus Canal was dredged using the labor of enslaved people and has been a site of heavy industry for a lot of its working life, the Gowanus Canal used to be a stream that was part of a marsh. And in Hurricane Sandy in 2012, the Gowanus overflowed because the water remembered that it was supposed to be a marsh. So while the Gowanus Canal now looks and feels a lot like an industrial wet street. It actually is a tremendously natural place that holds a lot of memory of being a natural place. And that kind of consistent recognition and manifestation of natural processes, I think feels like nature to me, no matter what it looks like. I am from Minnesota, from Lake Country, so I'm not very used to oceans, but we've definitely gone on walks, at least to Newtown Creek, which is another very polluted waterway in New York City. And while we were walking, I was just so surprised to see all of these little mollusks, mussels, and little starfish and stuff that are just hanging out in the little tidal pools there, even though it's so, so polluted and so denaturalized. I think it's really important to remember that ecosystems remember, even if we don't. So yes, Newtown Creek is full of living things. The New York City Harbor used to be overflowing with oysters, and now the oysters are coming back, in large part due to positive human interaction with that marsh ecosystem and those those reefs. There's so much living, no matter, you know, the concrete sides or the the 
hoard bulkheads. Like there's still living stuff and you just have to like let yourself see it. When I think about the nature of my childhood, I think about the woods behind my parents' house. There's this big sandstone rock formation that is known to white folks as Castle Rock. The Dakota name is Inyambostada, which is rock standing on end, and it's surrounded by all of these woods. And so as a kid, we would like walk all through there, and it felt very quote-unquote natural. But then as I learned more about the history of the place that I lived, I learned that those woods were not originally there. And that back when the Dakota people were living and thriving in the landscape, that whole landscape was prairie. Mm. And you can't see Inyambostada now because the woods have grown up all around it. But back before colonization, you could see this rock formation all the way from the Cannon River, which is 20 miles away Mm -hmm. because it was just all grassland. And then even in those woods, you have like my parents are always complaining about all of the buckthorn that's there. Mm. Um, Buckthorn's an invasive species from Europe that takes over. So are we. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, That has taken over a bunch of forests in the Midwest. Um, And so... Yeah, this forest that I grew up thinking was so, so natural has Mm -hmm. all these layers of of human intervention. And even that prairie that was there before was the result of consistent burning by the Dakota people and this regime of human intervention through fire. You saying that makes me think about the parts of New York City that everyone likes to talk about as being natural, the most familiar of which for me is Prospect Park, which was designed by Frederick Law Olmsted, who is known for designing these beautiful, very natural feeling spaces. Prospect Park is amazing and has gone through so many successions of trees and assorted wildlife and like living stuff and natural stuff that's there but really a bunch of people were displaced and then they bulldozed a bunch of it and then they put stuff down and like made it green and most parks in New York City are like pits in the ground full of clean soil and trees which is actually not natural at all. Is it still natural if you take the nature things and you put them down in the ground? I don't know. I don't think it's a bad thing to do necessarily, but I also want to question the idea that it looks and feels the way Prospect Park does or the way these woods do, that it is natural without examining the way it got to be that way. And nature has this connotation of goodness and of perfection in a way. And And also cleanliness. Yeah. And so slapping that on a landscape that has a history of change and interaction erases all of that and kind of just says, yes, this is a clean, beautiful, perfect space. I think it's also the idea that nature is like pristine, which from what I understand actually comes out of this like white man explorer bullshit where this American idea was born of the wilderness in which the the so-called wilderness was being, you know, contaminated or used or underused by indigenous people who were basically taking much better care of that wilderness for thousands of years. That makes me think of a place like the Gowanus Canal, which is natural in that the things that have always been true about that space are still true. And those things have been true since the native people of the areas that now make up New York City that those folks were taking care of and like actively looking out for specifically the marshland like it's still a marsh it's just covered in shit (laughs) covered in concrete Mm -hmm. actually I guess what we're thinking about is that like this idea of nature is much more complicated it's not 
just one thing, and it's definitely not separate from humanity. It's kind of all mixed up together in what you may call a hybrid, a key term. So in order for us to think about this a little deeper, I'm going to introduce some other thinkers into the conversation. We're going to start, they're going to be all men, and then we will introduce some people at the end who are not men. So I'm going to talk about two people who in the late 80s, early 90s, we're looking at the world and thinking of these like traditional ideas of nature as separate from humanity and thinking that something is different. Like this, this doesn't play out. So we have Bruno Latour, who is reading his French newspaper in the late 90s. He's reading about the hole in the ozone. In the early 90s, the Montreal Protocol was passed. A bunch of nations came together and said that they were no longer going to be manufacturing hydrofluorocarbons, which are refrigerants, because when they get into the upper atmosphere, they destroy ozone, which means a lot more solar radiation comes into the atmosphere and royally mess things up. So Bruno Latour is reading about this protocol and about how we are putting hydrofluorocarbons into the atmosphere and it's completely changing the way the sun interacts with the earth. And he says, nature and society have completely been mixed up. There's no separation anymore. It's all a hybrid. And that realization brings him to write his book, We Have Never Been Modern. <laughs> Your face, oh my god. For our yes, listeners, it's... I'm making a horrible face because I'm upset that this white dude who is French is like, oh, nature and people are different, but they're not. It is the fault of Europeans that there is a divide between humans and nature and that humans do not see themselves as part of the natural world. So that's the uh, verbal translation of my like nasty face. Yes. The modernity that he's fighting against when he says we have never been modern is this idea that through technology, we as humans can separate ourselves from natural physical limits, energy constraints, from land constraints, all these things. Bruno is making this realization and saying the more that we try to push away, the more we try to push into modernity and liberate ourselves from the planet, the more we just tangle ourselves up in it. And so around the same time, we have another person, climate daddy Bill McKibben. He is in the Adirondacks in upstate New York, and he's reading in his newspaper about huge wildfires burning in Yellowstone National Park. This is in 1988. And he's connecting this to the greenhouse effect phenomenon, which... Do you know the how many years before 1988 Exxon scientists had known that their business was causing? I want to say like 15. I think it was, I think this, that Exxon started doing research in the mid 70s through the mid 80s that identified that extraction and burning of fossil fuels would contribute to something called the greenhouse effect. And it was only approaching the 90s when that corporation and other fossil fuel corporations started to pour a ton of money into deceiving the public about the impacts of fossil fuel extraction. Right. And it was around that same time in the late 80s, early 90s, that Bill McKibben and other folks were connecting this idea of the greenhouse effect to these wildfires and saying humans have completely changed the planet and his conclusion is that nature is over. He writes a book called The End of Nature, basically saying a similar thing to Bruno that like we have completely changed the natural world. Any idea of what used to be natural is gone. First of all, no. Second of all, thank gosh for newspapers. I feel like the newspapers are the real hero here. Again, we have another white man saying these very white Western concepts don't make sense anymore. 
later we have folks that are reading these original two people. They're reading Bruno Latour, they're reading uh, Bill McKibben, and they're kind of calling into question exactly what we're questioning. What do you mean that nature and culture are have been hybridized. What do you mean that nature is over? We have Stephen Vogel. He's reading The End of Nature by Bill McKibben, and he says, wait a minute, if nature is over because of human influence, is nature everything that isn't influenced by humans? Which is what? Right. And what is it that makes humans so unnatural? And he's trying to figure out where this Bill McKibben idea fits between these two poles. One is Cartesianism, Immanuel Kant, who is credited with Cartesianism, this idea that there's like an eternal human soul that goes on forever and ever, never dies, is never truly in the physical realm. And then there is your um, mortal body that dies. It is affected by outside forces. He's saying, okay, Cartesianism doesn't make sense. He's also looking at this opposite pole where John Stuart Mill is saying that nature is everything that is affected by natural or physical laws like gravity and things like that. So he's like, okay, nature can't be absolutely everything if it's over, but it also can't be like this completely separate thing from humanity because that also doesn't make sense. So his conclusion is that nature as a term is just too wiggly and that we should just like ditch it for something else. Bill McKibben is saying this thing, but it's just more confusing because the nature at the center of it is just all contradictory and weird. Which I think kind of speaks to the colonial conception of nature and also other stuff. We know that both settler and extractive colonialism have relied upon distinct characterizations of things in order to control them, whether that is, you know, the human world and the natural world, whether it is men and women, um, you know, some of whom are property and some of whom are not, whether it is black and white, some of those people are property and some of those are not, like some of those people are not people. There's a really deep history of characterizing and categorizing things in order to control them at the hands of the the colonial state. I can't help but think of that now and say, you know, even though Stephen Vogel is trying to address the fact that there's so much nuance in this idea of nature, what he's actually emerging as saying is let's find something else that's more specific so that we can control it and grapple with it more, which is, I would argue, not what we need. Yes, I would agree. There's another person, Andreas Malm, who is reading Bruno Latour's We Have Never Been Modern, and he is also critiquing it, but he goes in an opposite direction. So he's reading We Have Never Been Modern and comes with the same problem. He says that the idea of a hybrid means that there must have been two poles that have been hybridized, which has an inherent Cartesianism. There's this separation that has been hybridized. And then he also says that this hybrid idea makes analysis really difficult. Mm -hmm. If everything is mixed up and hybridized, it's hard to pull things apart to say, like, where's the human in this? Where's the nature in this? What's good? What's bad? But in contrast to Stephen Vogel's conclusion, his conclusion is that we need to double down on these binaries of rich and poor, of global north and global south, and of what is natural and what is destructive to push for revolution. He's he's using a lot of Marxist theory, so he's very much about like making sure we assign blame and and figure out who's the proletariat and who's the bourgeoisie. But just the fact that he is like, no, we need binaries. As a queer person, I'm like, please no. No. Actually Can we not. <laughs> Actually, no. From what I understand, this is the idea of queer ecology, 
that it is precisely the ungraspable nature of ecology, which is the study of systems and interactions that is so inherently not binary and is so inherently queer that we have to step into accepting that nuance if we want to understand anything about the relationship between these very flexible, you know, so-called two parties of humans and nature. I also kind of take issue with the second issue he takes with the hybrid idea, which is that when things are hybridized, you can't analyze them. Like it's all one thing and you can't pull apart. I think looking at things as a hybrid causes you to look in other places. Like you're not looking at humans and nature. You're like, okay, which humans? You know? What nature? Yeah. Like what nature? What plants? What ecosystems? Which nations? Which corporations? Like you're not looking at human and nature. You're looking at these more discrete parts that have been hybridized. So we have these two dudes, Bruno and Bill, who are looking at the world and they're saying these traditional ideas don't make sense. We need something else. Something has changed. And they come up with these ideas that other two folks... Andreas and Steven also look at and say, this is imperfect. And then they come up with their own ideas to try to nuance them, to try to come to a conclusion. And still they go in opposite directions and don't really come up with anything that's really satisfying for me. Yeah. And I think what all four of these men are trying to do is trying to oversimplify something so that we can call it a name, which is exactly what binary and like applying binaries does as well. It's good to think about the difference and the relationship and the complexity of what we call humans and what we call nature. And I also, I don't know that it's necessary to categorize and identify each of those entities because they're not single entities. They're not monoliths. And obviously there is overlap. Obviously there is hybridization. Yes, we should talk about it, but I don't actually think the thing that these guys are trying to do, which is come to conclusions, is really necessary. In order to like push us out of that place, or I'm bringing in a couple of other thinkers who are both women. Julieta Singh has a very short, very readable, and free book, No Archive Will Restore You. You just Google it and you can just download it for free. And in this book, she's complicating this idea of Cartesian dualism, this like eternal soul that is separate from your physical body and like humanity as separate from nature. She's complicating that by citing two other feminist theorists. She cites Nancy Tuana, who points out that, quote, the boundaries between our flesh and the flesh of the world are less discreet than we are led to believe. And then she's pointing out uh, Teresa Brennan, who reminds us that, quote, the taken for grantedness of the emotionally contained subject is a residual bastion of Eurocentrism in critical thinking, end quote. Julieta concludes that she is, quote, fully invested in the conviction that our bodies and minds are less discreet than we have been led to believe. And so she's like getting to the root of this and saying our physical selves and our emotional selves are porous. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Agreed. I just think it's significant that instead of the way that these other folks are coming at it by saying like, okay, we have to like agree that this Cartesian dualism has some core of truth to it Mm -hmm. and like figure out how to like adjust the boundary. Julieta, by bringing in these other women, is saying that like this boundary is Eurocentric and at its base is false. Yeah, and I I think there's an interesting alignment between the physical self and the emotional self and like nature and culture because 
it is our physical selves that are most animal and most natural and our emotional selves which are most influenced and shaped by culture and even that like emotional self she's saying that like the fact that you are emotionally you know unaffected by other people or even like physical environments vibes and Mm -hmm. things like that is this eurocentrism and of course we don't have words for it in english we have to call it vibes and it's so much more complicated when you think about it that way like you can't tie your body off or your mind off from what's around you we we also can't draw a line between physical and emotional because so often the emotional is influenced by physical and like your brain is doing physical stuff but is also doing emotional stuff our control centers as human animals are unable to make that distinction. So then I want to bring in one other person. This is Anna Tsing. She has a book called The Mushroom at the End of the World. And this book offers an alternate divide altogether from human and nature. Instead of human and nature, she sees the distinction that's to be made between entanglement within interspecies life worlds and the alienation of people and things by their commodification or transformation into an asset. So she says... The dream of alienation inspires landscape modification in which only one standalone asset matters. Everything else becomes weeds or waste. Hmm. I'm thinking about marshes again. Surprise. Because, you know, a marshland is one of the most important kinds of ecosystems in the world, especially if you are in a coastal city. And those marshlands. I'm also reading a book about Miami and climate change. So marshes have been really on my mind. It's called Disposable City marshlands are very productive and so valuable in terms of protecting coasts, in terms of um, sequestering carbon and facilitating reproduction of many species and are such a vital habitat for so many things. However, for the longest time, humans have looked at marshlands and considered them useless and a waste of space and have drained them, filled them with concrete or landfill, and then built on top of them because we have chosen, and like those humans have chosen to value property and money over, you know, this this so-called like ecosystem services. Whereas now we can see with New York City and countless other coastal cities, those buildings that have been built on that landfill in that former marshland are now getting flooded whenever there's a big storm, which will continue to happen. So this kind of value judgment may shift because of, again, going back to that like memory that the natural world has about where it belongs. Her theories are related to the idea of the plantation, these like massive monocrop agricultural places. Like when she talks about only one standalone asset mattering, and everything else being weeds and waste, she's talking about like plantations most concretely, like where the only thing that matters is tobacco mm-hmm. and everything else there is weeds. But I think you could easily apply this idea to the city as a human plantation. And it's it's in contrast to these like interspecies life worlds that we're entangled with. So yeah, I think your example of the marsh, like we'll talk about a mangrove swamp, but it's not only mangroves it's so many animals and plants 
and different geophysical forces that are building this landscape. Mm -hmm. And I think even like the idea you mentioned ecosystem services, ecosystem services are a way that we assign monetary value to the work of these natural systems. And even that is kind of this like asset making. It's not like a discrete species that you're giving monetary value to, but it still is this this one commodity. And I think that that is entirely because we, as part of a settler colonial state, we can only comprehend value of a place like a marshland or a mangrove forest if we are able to map our existing value system about assets and profit onto those places. What thoughts do you have on how Julieta and Anna complicating these ideas of nature and culture and of the body in the world and the mind in the world, how does that relate to the earlier conversation that these men are having? I think on a really basic level, these men are trying to make a distinction and Julieta and Anna are both troubling that distinction and saying there is no distinction Along these lines, there are other distinctions to be made. For example, Anat Singh's distinction between these interspecies life worlds and commodities. And that, to me, feels a lot more salient and a lot more representative of the actual divides that exist in our world. Is this an ecosystem that can self-sustain? Or is this a place that has been taken apart and reformed in a different way to yield profit instead of life? Bruno Latour and Bill McKibben are kind of like paradigm shifting, but they are trying to do it by saying this line that we've drawn, we need to move it. And the way that Anna and Julieta are coming to it is they're saying like, wait, this line is drawn on this level. And there's so much on this much deeper level mm-hmm. that we're not acknowledging at all. And so the paradigm is not of like moving the line. It's of looking what's underneath. And as you said, it's like kind of seems more complicated at first because it's a different way of thinking about it. But then, as you said, like it resonates so much more easily with our daily lives and the conflicts that drive our world today. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to ask about something that you've brought up a couple times, which is this idea that nature knows where it wants to be, that like marshes remember where they were, maybe even Bill. McKibben would say, what do you mean nature knows where it wants to be? Like nature can't get back because we've put so much carbon into the atmosphere. We have talked about the Anthropocene in many contexts. It hasn't come up yet here. And I think it's worthwhile to acknowledge that, yes, we are living in a time when whether or not you want to call it the Anthropocene, basically every part of the planet has been impacted by human interaction and human intervention. While that is true, geologic time and human time are not the same thing. And while, yes, we have made an indelible mark on this planet as a species, no, geologic time has not yet acknowledged that in the same way that human time has, I think. If you look at the 1609 map of the archipelago that makes up New York City and you look at where all the marsh is and then you overlay a map of the 2012 flood from Hurricane Sandy, it is the same map. The water said, I know where I'm supposed to go. I'm going to go here. And it went exactly the place it went 400 years ago because that's where it goes. Like that's what the shape of the earth is telling the water to do. I think that's a big distinction between 
what Julieta and Anna are saying versus these other folks is that like Bill is saying there's an end to nature, that there's a point where we modify so much that nothing's left. And Juliet and Anna, and also what you're saying is that there's so much more than we can ever even understand. We got to just like breathe into that not knowing yep. and like embrace yep. the complication. So we are going to take a brief musical interlude and then we will come back and discuss um, some films, some TV shows, some books, and see how nature is constructed in each of them and what those constructions can tell us about the different agendas and the different ideas that these authors have about what is natural. Scaffolding covers the mural in the window And we all tell each other we like it better this way Cause when it gets dark we climb up and look down at the place Where we all stood and looked up in the light of midday But I thought I saw you lying on the ground in the middle of the street last night And I thought I saw you when I was looking down from upon that great height Did you see me too? Up on the scaffold silhouetted by the street's light Did you see me too? Carried by the air between us in that warm night Did you see me too? Up on the scaffold silhouetted by the street's light Did you see me too? Carried by the air between us in that warm night We came to a thin film Scaffold on the underlying structure When you are above Do you understand what stands under? We cling to a thin film Scaffold on the underlying structure When you are above Do you understand what stands under? We cling to a thin film When Scaffold it gets down the underlying structure When you are above Do you understand what stands under? Where do you understand what 
what stands on the light of So, we just had a very windy conversation about the very wiggly concept of nature, and we are not the only ones talking about it. In fact, there are assumptions and ideas about nature that ground every newspaper article, every podcast, and every comic book. In this second half, we're going to look at movies, books, and TV shows, and try to tease out what they are saying about what nature is and what it isn't. The idea behind this segment is that this is something you can do whenever you read, watch, or listen to something. And it's an especially helpful tool when you're making something yourself. I wonder if maybe you want to talk about how you think about this when you're making stuff, because I know that it is on your mind often when you make stuff. Yeah, I guess I think of myself as an environmental person first and an artist second. And so when I'm making things, whether it's a video or a song or something like that, I usually start with an environmental idea and then try to put it into a piece of music or something. I know a lot of people are like trying to tell a story first. Mm -hmm. And when they're telling that story, these assumptions that we have, that we grew up with, kind of like creep in to the way that that story is built. So I guess I think it's about like taking a step back and looking at, okay, what is this saying? Because whether or not you're trying to put an idea about nature into something, there's something there. Yeah, which kind of, I think, suggests that culture cannot exist without nature. Very, very true. You've never seen Avatar. I've never seen it. I think I have never seen it because I am under the impression it will make me very upset. What is your like description of Avatar as someone who's never seen it? Um, blue. <laughs> blue people. <laughs> All I know about it is that it's blue and there are aliens and like there's some nature stuff and it's complicated and also sad. I watched this movie back when it came out and I have not stopped thinking about it since. And as I learn more about environmental thought, the more I think about this movie. So the basic story is these space explorers from Earth are coming to this planet called Pandora to extract a very rare material called unobtainium. There's an indigenous population called Navi that live on the planet. And so in order to extract this substance they've created these puppets sort of they're called avatars so it's like a navi body that these humans plug into and basically like live as a navi and so the idea is that the main characters are going to like talk to the indigenous population in these blue person suits and get them to help them find unobtainium and a divide happens between the main characters who end up like falling literally in love with Navi people and this like military state complex that still wants to mine these things. And the humans end up partnering and leading the Navi to use their earth system that they're intimately connected to through their brainstem to like destroy the humans and keep them from extracting from the planet. What are things that stick out to you about that description? First things first, love the name unobtainium. We should start calling fossil fuels unobtainium and like love the premise that it is not gettable, which mm -hmm. like 
most things that we extract should not be. One of the things that's interesting to me and not explicitly upsetting is that it seems like it is the human element, which in this case manifests as love, that betrays the mission of the like military capitalist state, which is cool, which makes me think, okay, maybe we have a fighting chance. I'm glad that you're finding things that are good in it. Um, there definitely is a good critique of the extractive industry in this film. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, what people plug into as the environmental narrative, that right. there's this like pristine wilderness and then this very bad company that's trying to disturb it. Yes, corporations find, are the root of all evil. And like, it's good that they said that. The thing that I really hate about this is the way that the ecosystem is constructed. Everyone loves how like beautiful and interactive the ecosystem is. Like they're like walking along these leaves and they light up as they touch them and they like plug their brainstem into a horse and the horse immediately like bonds with them and they can like share brainwaves and stuff. People really love that like intimate connection bit mm. and responsiveness. But I think there's an underlying idea of nature as like this machine that's operated by humans. And I think that's really apparent at the end when the Navi all like plug their brainstems into the earth through their collective will turn Awa, which is like the, the earth system god, into like a weapon to destroy these invaders. Whoa. And so there's this role of the Navi people, these humanoid people, as like the actors, as like the hands of nature. They're the ones who are uh -huh. driving the planet. And it dovetails with this idea that these humans can plug into their indigenous suits and and get like, powers that indigenous people have which is and not only that but lead ah. the indigenous people and and corrupt that which like i don't know if this is true in avatar but from what i understand about indigeneity you know the power to feel like safe and at home and in your place as a person who considers themselves part of nature is born out of deep relationship which is born out of trust which comes from mutual respect which seems like it's not present in the like you do not you do not need trust or respect to plug your thing into a thing i don't know maybe to some people this claim that like the earth system in pandora or the planetary system in pandora is like a machine is a little bit of a stretch but I want to show you something, if we can watch it together, um, that makes that connection very clear. And this is an advertisement for a car that Mercedes uh, designed in collaboration with the Avatar movie called the Mercedes AVTR. supposed to be i don't know I, what <laughs> <laughs> so to describe what we just watched this white man is in this like very blue and purple lit space and he's approaching this car this futuristic looking car and the car is reacting to him responding to his presence through its little flaps the door opens so that he can 
sit in it and then like he like puts his hand on the center console which like lifts up to meet his touch and there's this like bonding moment which is very key to the avatar lore is like this bond that you forge but ultimately it's a car and (laughs) i guess that's that's what i feel like the world of avatar is shown like like it's this car that you plug into mm-hmm. yes it's very responsive it's a tool you but it's operate something that you, right yes it's a tool that the navi and the humans in their navi suits are operating also like what that read to me as is like white man approaches like submissive woman and uses her to please himself that that reads to me very much as you know, this is a tool that responds to my every need. And also, this is, I think, what humans were trying to get out of enslaving other humans and owning other humans, putting the the natural responsiveness to use in service of an entity in power is what I saw there. So when you think about the Avatar movie on a deeper level, on the surface, it's this like beautiful, responsive ecosystem. But on a deeper level, it's this metaphor for for use and abuse and submissiveness what i'm thinking about now is the ways in which humans who do not identify as indigenous experience a deep sense of loss because this connection to place and ecosystem is not present and one of the many manifestations of that loss is taking something and trying to control it so that you can be a part of it. And I think that's Mm. what I'm seeing here. And you can see that kind of fantasy playing out in the Avatar movie of of this non-Indigenous person trying to take ownership of something to feel connectedness. And the frustrating thing for me is that the movie sells the fantasy as reality, that you can just plug in and just plug into your your indigenous suit and Um, i think the same i mean the same thing is present with the car like we can't camouflage ourselves but we can technologize something to be responsive to us the way you know the octopus is responsive to the coral it's hiding next to and like using technology as a substitute for nature and instinct yeah you know that beneath the like smooth surface of this car is a huge cpu that is working very hard and using so much electricity and is also made Made up of of rare earth minerals right yes and it it comes back to bruno latour really trying so hard to like make nature as a modern human thing that we can control it just tangles us up more we just get tangled in so many more extractive projects yeah we're working so hard to make this thing that feels natural that we you know how many different land masses and how many different ecosystems were implicated in the construction of that vehicle. We're pulling so hard on the resources of the planet to make something that feels natural to us that we've completely like lost sight of what what the thing is. That's good. I like that. So The Lorax is one of my favorite books. This is by Dr. Seuss, classic children's book. It tells of this being the Lorax that speaks for the trees um, and tells the story of a human in the past that didn't listen and destroyed the forest of trees that the Lorax spoke for and and now we live in this in this post-industrial landscape of destruction. Do you think the Lorax is a part of nature or is it part of culture or is it something else i think that the lorax is a part of culture created to fill the void 
left between culture and nature. I think Dr. Seuss definitely imagines this guide, this this mm-hmm. being that can say, here's what you need to do. Mm-hmm. Like, here's how you need to interact. Because the Lorax speaks for the trees. It is not a tree. Yeah. But yet is like communicating to humans exactly what they should be doing. And also letting humans off the hook for not knowing. And also goes back to this idea that many humans do not consider themselves part of nature. And therefore, it is a lot easier to not feel responsibility for nature. And thus, this other entity that is neither human nor quite nature needs to exist in order to get humans back on the page of believing that it is human responsibility to take care of what we call nature. It's making me think of the avatar thing. Like it's this other fantasy Mm -hmm. of like, what if we just like knew what to do? Which also speaks to a huge sense of loss. We don't know what to do. And the book is all about loss. Like it takes place Mm -hmm. after all of this destruction happened. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's this question of unless, like, like maybe we can find a way but it's not a promise and that makes me think of bill bill mckibben saying like nature over. is over yeah you know i think what i was missing in steven vogel's critique of that is like that bill mckibben is a climate person and i think people in the climate conversation come from this place of like maybe we are completely doomed and yet we still have to act you know like nature mm-hmm. is over but that doesn't mean it's over for us yeah And also, I think it's really important to make a distinction, like individual choices at scale are impactful, but individual choices themselves are not impactful. And in fact, you know, it is 71 companies, it is, you know, 142 CEOs and CFOs, like, it's the we can name names, we know who it is, and who it was. And it wasn't like, I, I refuse to believe that people are bad. And like, we fucked up and it's wrong and it's over. Because if I believe mm-hmm. that, I would not be trying to stop the, the train hurtling towards catastrophe. Adrienne Marie Brown, I think of her all the time and what she says about individual action in Emergent Strategy, where she talks about how individual actions don't make sense in like a your consumer choices change the world thing, but they do make sense in the role that you play in a movement. Mm-hmm. If recycling helps commit you to this movement if it reminds you that you're a part of this thing right then it is important and being a part of this thing is exactly what we've been kind of dancing around for this whole conversation it doesn't really matter what you do it does matter how you take care of yourself and make yourself feel like you are of a place and remind yourself that you actually are a part of something despite all the like centuries of cultural wiping away and natural wiping away that have yielded so many of us these like placeless people. I also want to ask about the ecosystem in the Lorax. I think it's interesting because the Lorax speaks for the trees, which are these, I guess, characteristic megaflora. They're very like beautiful looking trees. Mm -hmm. But I think it's made clear in the book that the trees are not what is of value. It is the ecosystem that they create. Like you see birds Mm -hmm. and other animals that rely on these trees. And I think the saddest thing in the book is not seeing the trees disappear. It's seeing like the birds covered in sludge flying away and that kind of stuff. I think we often look for symbols, which kind of, I think, emerges from this need for categorization. Those trees represent all of these things, but it's really complicated to go into the 
all of the all of these things so we're just going to talk about the trees and and imply that there is much more i think that the trees are serving as a proxy dr seuss's assumption is that we didn't need to know about the ecosystem to believe that the trees serve as a reminder that the whole ecosystem is important which is another thing that we learn i mean this is a children's book so many of us were raised with this book Mm -hmm. and therefore like learned this idea maybe from this book maybe from elsewhere that like metonymy isn't it what it's called where where a part stands for a whole Mm. all you need to think about is the tree and then the ecosystem will just come along with it which is kind of an interesting inverse of thinking that it's possible to go into an ecosystem and extract one thing and everything else will be fine which is on a very basic level a misunderstanding of how ecosystems work so it's sort it's kind of a funny choice to use as a proxy yeah very true and i think that's that's the other thing i really like about the lorax is like it comes back to Annette Singh's idea. The villainous act that happens in this book is the taking of the truffula tree out of its its multi-species life world and turning it into a commodity. That's what leads to the downfall of this whole ecosystem. I'm I'm just giggling about the idea of missing the forest for the trees. Like that's mm-hmm. literally what's going on here. If you read the Lorax with a little bit more nuance than just like this is a children's book about taking care of the earth which i think goes back to another conversation we've been having for this whole time about how you actually can't use proxies and you can't use like you can't call a whole set of things one thing like you can't call an ecosystem a tree and you can't call an ecosystem four different commodities so i'm reading for another class about like reforestation efforts of the atlantic forest in brazil and how they're trying to use these leguminous trees the idea is that like these leguminous trees can help change the soil enough that other things can grow there and that's kind of the assumption that we're given in the end of the lorax that like this kid gets a truffula seed and the idea is that you just plant this one seed and it should create a whole forest and as we know with ecosystems that have been changed they don't just pop back maybe different birds will show up maybe some of the same birds will show up but like Mm -hmm. you can't count on just having one piece of the puzzle I do think there's something here about time because we, we've we talked about geologic time and human time and in Avatar, it's like they get in and they get out. You know, they they like try to go extract this thing and then shit gets weird and then they stop and like everyone moves on and the Lorax like there's this one seed, maybe it will reverse all of the damage. But actually, and I think that this is one of the hardest things for humans to comprehend about nature is that natural time and human time are so different. You know, the idea of seven generations is a lot more temporally aligned with natural time. And thinking about how long it takes for a species to evolve and how long it takes for, you know, a river to change its course or a bird to find a new habitat. That all happens in spans of time that are a lot longer than one generation, the short-sightedness of which has been crucial to like colonization and extraction efforts. Mm -hmm. And profit and extraction and commodification are all about more instant returns on investments, not longer-term relationships that yield sustainable investments or if we want to call them what they really should be, like sustainable sources of food and water and all of the things that every thing basically needs to live. Can you say a little bit more about where this idea of seven generations comes from? I'm not the most equipped to talk about this, but from what I understand, many indigenous groups of people, especially those from Turtle Island, um, which is the 
what we now refer to as the North American landmass. There's this idea that you do your work to to take care of yourself and your people and the place that you are of, not just for yourself, but for the next seven generations, which from my interpretation is like long enough that you can't really imagine that. It's like a land ethic that comes out of a people ethic. Yeah. And that comes out of an acknowledgement that land and people are intertwined and we've got a good relationship going. Those two entities actually really need each other. Last, we want to talk about Snowpiercer, the film by Bong Joon-ho with Tilda Swinton in it, who I love. (laughs) God bless Tilda Swinton. You just watched this movie and you had a pretty intense reaction to it. I had, I think I had the most intense reaction to it that I've ever had to a film. And the basic premise is laid out in the first couple of slides of text. And then it kind of jumps right into the story. So the, the idea is that global warming gets out of control. I can't remember if it's a government or a corporation, but honestly, if that world is anything like this world, it doesn't really matter. Some entity decides that they're going to spray this chemical into the atmosphere, which will cool the earth down and hopefully make it more habitable. And instead, it plunges the earth into a deep ice age. The place where we start the movie is that in order to save some humans... This guy named Wilford builds this amazing train with an eternal engine. And the train is constantly circumnavigating the earth. Takes a year to circumnavigate the track. And the train is the only place where humans can live. The train is also separated by class. So the tail section is like the steerage section of a of an old ship. Um, that's where the, the poor people are. Um, and then it, it moves up by class. And of course, Wilford is in the engine car at the front of the train. There's this underlying notion, which gets mentioned a couple of times throughout the film, that the train can work because a perfect balance is maintained between the amount of resources and the number of people using those resources. One of the first things that happens in the movie is that the people at the back of the train try to stage this revolution to get up to the front of the train and get out of their like throes of poverty. It's it's interesting because you have these two different ecosystems or or planetary systems. Mm-hmm. Um, you have the the Earth system that has been completely changed by geoengineering, which is a very real technology that governments and corporations are considering. Part of why this um, scared the living crap out of me. It's science fiction. But also the thing about really science close. fiction is, yeah, that there's a there's a truth in it. And that's very close for us. And then we have this other planetary system, sort of an enclosed system of the train. Mm-hmm. And we see pieces of the ecology. We see like the like bricks of food that they eat that you mm-hmm. later realize are made of roaches and pests, which is an interesting form of nutrient recycling that's supposed to like really disgust us. Just going to introduce a different piece of science fiction, which is Cloud Atlas. There is a similar situation in Cloud Atlas, but the bricks of food equivalent in Cloud Atlas is made of people. So mm-hmm. because I just read Cloud Atlas, I was watching this movie and I was like, oh, cockroaches, like, it's not, <laughs> at least they're not eating people. <laughs> but there is this, in both movies, I would say the disgust comes from this, like, alienation from the food system. Yeah. That, like, this, like, abstracted piece of caloric material is, like, who knows where it could be from. One of the things that, like, kind of puts me off is this idea of the in- eternal engine um the one normal explanation i can find for this is that homie at the front of the train has figured out a way to 
harness the potential energy of the movement of the train and turn it into energy that moves the train. Effectively has figured out how to make a perpetual motion machine. Fast forward to the very end of the movie, we find out that, you know, there was a point at which the the engine was eternal. Things changed and they replaced a part of the engine with small human beings who are obviously slaves putting something in and out of a hole in order to make the engine run which first of all is dumb and second of all is horrifying so i think i like i think that the the moral that i got there is that the only way something like an eternal engine can work is if you have something that is not eternal that you treat as disposable which is basically how our global economy works. We are consistently extracting and producing and consuming and making waste. And this is only possible because we have both people and places that we treat as disposable. It's very interesting because like the train is this like completely closed system. There's this idea that there is, you know, like the roaches are used Mm -hmm. as food. There is no waste, but still humans are seen as expendable. Yeah. And I think there's also... Another part of this like engine of the train is the class system itself. And another spoiler for the end, but like this guy gets to the end of the train and he realizes that the Wilford who's there is not the original Wilford and that the whole class struggle to get to the front of the train was to get someone else to take over the train. I don't remember that that Wilford is not the original Wilford, but I do definitely agree with you that regardless of that, oh, maybe not. it's but. less about the person and more about the position of power. And the guy who stages the revolution, which we also find out was coordinated between the front and the back of the train, which mm-hmm. is, you know, disheartening as anything, is offered the position of running the train, which is is just like so disgustingly like pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you'll succeed. And also, mm-hmm. how many people are there in the tail section? One person can do that. And also, however many hundreds or more cannot do that. There's this very like capitalistic nihilism there that you can fight really hard to get to the top, but getting to the top means sacrificing everything you stood for and everyone you love like everyone dies except for this kid who is subject to enslavement in the engine and this other kid whose father is this like security whiz and and the two of them this I would guess like 19 or 20 year old woman and this little boy get out of the train at the end and the train like explodes I kind of see as the equivalent to the one seed in the Lorax. Like, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. these two people are not going to like rehumanify this icy planet. Like there's a polar bear. But also like what actually happens at the end is that, you know, the train explodes. Two people get out. They see a polar bear and they're like, OK, life is possible on this planet. Also, humans and polar bears are different. So just like right. let's leave that aside. The best thing we can imagine for this pair of people is that they survive until they die. And then like the evolutionary clock is reset and humans are extinct as they should have been after the geoengineering. I mean, there's so much biblical, not imagery, but like concepts in this movie. Mm -hmm. Like these two people at the end are Adam and Eve. There's this train that is an arc for humanity. And like you have this geoengineering that went wrong, which is kind of like a flood, natural disaster Mm -hmm. that could be caused by some omnipotent power, which is... A corporation. What's your Tilda Swinton bit? 
Um, one of the moments that I have just been replaying over and over and over in my mind is she looks at the guy who's leading the revolution and is like, we have to kill people off. This is only viable because we need to maintain a perfect balance. And the idea is to restore and maintain a perfect balance, which obviously is the thing that we need on the planet. Otherwise, we are going to end up in a train or yeah. something like it. Well, it relates to the idea of population control, which is very popular with some environmentalists, or as we would call them, eco-fascists, who think <laughs> that in order to restore that. balance to the planet, we need to prevent people from reproducing. And obviously that's a, a flawed system that depends on class inequality, which is, I think, what we see on this train. That, like, in order to curb and curtail population for this model to work, you need humans who are valuable and humans who are not valuable. Which is, again, like treating some of the mass of the world as disposable, whether that is, mm -hmm. you know, a place or a people. I think if there's anything that I take from the movie, it's that environmental action and class action are inseparable. Mm -hmm. One's going to impact the other. And of course, we are in a climate crisis because of capitalism, which serves that, serves that point pretty directly. The last thing I want to bring up with this that I'm thinking about is the fact that this train is not something that can stop. Mm -hmm. The only thing that stops the train is it blowing up. Yes, this is an arc for humanity, but this arc can never return to Earth without mm -hmm. destroying itself. And I think it's also a kind of too big to fail mentality. We've mm -hmm. invested so much in this and you know this is supposedly the only inhabitable place on earth but also it doesn't work but we also can't acknowledge that it doesn't work because we've invested so much in it which is a take i often see with global capitalism and it brings in bruno latour's hybridism again that like mm -hmm. they have tried so so hard to liberate themselves from the earth system and yet this train is like more than anything else subject to these laws and limits Snowpiercer makes me so sad and made me so sad, which, you know, I think is about the tragedy that allowing capitalism to dominate nature will yield and has yielded. Bong Joon-ho's really good at that. He's really good at that. So we've just gone on a journey through three different pieces of media discussing how they construct nature. And as you heard, there's so so much that can come out of these conversations and i hope that you're able to carry these same conversations into your own media consumption and your own relationships and your own art making and thank you so much for listening to this episode of the uh, polyculture podcast if you like this if you'd like to see us talk about more kinds of culture if you have money to fund us let us know like seriously reach out to us you can find us both on twitter my handle is at yay purple cheese my Mine is at Zealous Observer. And you can find us on actually kind of a lot of other podcasts and places. Lena writes a daily newsletter called Digestible. And That's Gabe writes a Mondayly column for Digestible. Where I do kind of a similar thing where I look at cultural products. And that's digestible.substack.com. And it's spelled digestable, S-T-A-B-L-E. We also have some other podcasts. What are your podcasts? I your podcast? also co-host a podcast with an organization called Corporate Accountability that's called Subvert. You can find it on all of the normal podcast places. I co-host a podcast that's completely different from this one with Cole Stephenson called Ladyfingers, where we talk about the Great British Bake Off. So if you're into that, you can hear 
that. And then if you want to hear us together, we were part of this very lovely audio zine called Queer Out Here. You can find it in the pod places and their episode volume five side A has a piece that we made together about biking through New York City. And we'll be back. Hope to hear from you soon. Otherwise, we hope you have a great day, week, year, life. Human time. Yes, we hope your human time is pleasant. Happy human time. Thanks for listening to the Polyculture Podcast. The cover art, editing, and music in this episode were by me, including the interlude song Scaffolding. If you like what you heard, or if you have a song that you'd like to feature, please get in touch with us. We'll talk to you soon. 